Good morning, Sojourners. As Dr. Fraser mentioned, I do feel that this is the pinnacle of preaching here. Sojourners, I love Sojourners. Um, it's a younger crowd than I remember before going to Israel, so that's, that's a change. Um, and usually, we have several more Hebrew scholars in the room than we do. Thankfully, two of them are in Israel, so there's a little bit less pressure on me. I just have to slip by interpretations past Pastor Abner, so I'll do my best there. Uh, please turn in your Bibles to Daniel. It's been a while since we've looked at Daniel, so just to remind you, it's after Isaiah and then Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and then Daniel. If you can't find Isaiah, you might have to go to your table of contents. There's no shame there. I've done it too. We're looking at Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. I'm going to read the first few verses from the LSB. Belshazzar the king held a great feast for 1,000 of his nobles. And he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he said to bring the gold and silver vessels, which Nebuchadnezzar's father had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem. So the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact that you've given us your word. Lord, you've said it before us clearly that we don't need to look to a prophet to understand what you are doing in the world because you've already prophesied these things on our behalf and you've transmitted them down to us today. Lord, we thank you for your sovereign hand that has always been at work since the beginning of creation, is still at work now, and will continue to control all things for your glory and for our benefit until the end of days. In your name we pray. Amen. Predictions. Predictions, forecasts, projections. These are everyday words for us that you aren't surprised to hear if you're in a business meeting or you're watching the news or maybe when you're picking out whether you're going to wear a sweater to church this morning. You are aware of forecasts, predictions, projections. We know analysts, they look for signs in the economy to guess at the best things that you should put your money into. They look at interest rates, they look at inflation, stocks, housing prices, and weather forecasters, they have meteorological signs. They measure air humidity, they measure wind speed, temperature, that sort of thing. And sometimes, with their predictions, they get it wrong. And sometimes it's not that important. Like a couple of weeks ago, I checked my weather app before going to school, and it said it was going to rain all day and it was going to be cold. So I packed a big puffy jacket and took it with me to school. It drizzled for like 10 minutes, and then the rest of the day, it was warm and sunny. I carried around a big puffy jacket all day as a very unfashionable accessory, and it was humiliating. So not a huge deal, um, because sometimes they get it wrong, and it's okay. But sometimes an analysis can be very wrong, and it can be very important. So in 1968, Dr. Paul Ehrlich wrote a book that would become a bestseller. It was called The Population Bomb. Maybe you've heard of it, The Population Bomb? 
It was all the rage in the 70s. He essentially argued that overpopulation was causing overconsumption, and that soon, hundreds of millions of people throughout the world would starve because there were just too many people in the world, and they would just continue and continue. He wrote, and I quote, the battle to feed all of humanity is over. In the 1970s, hundreds of millions of people will starve to death in spite of any crash programs embarked upon now. At this late date, nothing can prevent a substantial increase in the world death rate. And the necessary solution that he offered was population controls, even sterilization of people that he thought were too poor to sustain themselves, to sustain children, to even cut off food aid to poor countries that didn't have a strong enough economy to support their high populations, which is all disgusting, all deplorable. This is not how we treat humanity. But ironically, today, a lot of the countries that followed policies like this are now dealing with the opposite issue. They're now dealing with underpopulation. They can't replace enough people to support their aging population that is about to retire. And so we make these predictions, we do our best, we look at the signs, but we're human. We're not in control of everything. We, we can only make observations. But we keep looking for signs of the future. In this passage this morning, the king of Babylon receives a sign not from the weather, not from the economy, not from man, but from the king of heaven. He receives a prediction guaranteed by the hand of God. So we need to look at the story so far. Before we look at Daniel 5 together, it's vital that we review the storyline of Daniel as a whole. Because it's been a while, but Daniel really expects you to understand the storyline throughout chapter 5. So in Daniel 1, I apologize, the font is a bit small. Uh, I, think, I, think I, I think I made a mistake when I uh, exported it. Uh, where we have Daniel and friends following the law in exile. So chapter 1 establishes who Daniel and his friends are, right? They are Jewish exiles who choose to follow the law even when they don't live in the kingdom of God, when they live in a Gentile kingdom, in a foreign kingdom, a pagan kingdom. And God blesses them miraculously for their faithfulness. Who has ever gotten fat over a vegan diet? I don't know. Maybe, uh, don't, don't tell me. Don't tell me. Okay. Um, but the point is, they, they, they didn't eat much. They were miraculously made fatter than everybody else, and everybody thought it was awesome. It's, it's a real amazing story. So God blesses them miraculously for their faithfulness, and from this we learn that Daniel is teaching us how to live in exile, how to live outside God's kingdom. Now, this group is called sojourners, sojourners and strangers, because we don't live in the kingdom of God. We don't see the Messiah reigning on earth right now. Instead, we live in pagan kingdoms. We live in different nations. Some of us are from different countries. Some of us are from different states here, and we have different laws, different settings, different uh, cultures, different communities. Daniel is telling us this is how you live outside of the kingdom of God. Then we see Daniel chapter 2, where Daniel and his friends interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And here, God demonstrates his power through Daniel and his, uh, his Jewish faithful friends. And Nebuchadnezzar recognizes for the first time that Daniel's God, Yahweh, is sovereign. And Daniel encourages us by explaining to us exactly what will happen in history. He says, um, because of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he interpreted for us, that after Babylon comes Medo-Persia, and then Greece, and then Rome, and we get more details in chapter 9 where we get a revived Rome, we get the ten horns. And finally, we have the divine kingdom, the kingdom that we've been looking for, the kingdom that we are still waiting for today, the millennial kingdom to come. So rather than despairing as we see the horrors of history unfold, Daniel's telling us we can live confidently knowing that God is entirely in control and has already determined the future. 
Then, chapter 3, the friends worship God alone in exile. So Daniel exits the scene, but we have a focus on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refuse to serve any other god than Yahweh alone. And when Nebuchadnezzar challenges the true God, God miraculously saves these faithful servants of God from the fire. So again, we're being taught how do we live. We need to serve God alone above all other false gods. And then a few weeks ago, we had Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar is humbled and converted. We see Nebuchadnezzar at his worst and at his best. The most powerful man in the world is humbled below the beasts of the field. But Nebuchadnezzar's confession at the end is just glorious to behold because he fully submits to the king of heaven, the one who is truly in control of all things, the one who can bring any man low. And now we're in Daniel chapter 5. Okay? We need to understand the storyline because Daniel 5 assumes that you know all these things because Daniel and God assume that Belshazzar already knows all these things. Okay? Now, the first four verses I'm calling a banquet of blasphemy. I'll read again verses 1 through 4. Belshazzar the king held a great feast for 1,000 of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he said to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar's father had taken out of the temple, which is in Jerusalem, so the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. The king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, they drank from them. They drank the wine and praise the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now you and I, as we're reading Daniel, we don't know who Belshazzar is. Up to this point, the book of Daniel hasn't told us anything about Belshazzar, and that, that's okay. But we're learning everything we need to know about him right here. Daniel doesn't give us a formal introduction to say, in X year of wise reign, so-and-so came to power. He doesn't tell us that background of Belshazzar. He says, you can know everything you need about Belshazzar's character as a king from this alone. And if we remember, on Mother's Day, Pastor Abner preached from Proverbs 31. And we learned that kings don't drink wine. Kings don't drink wine. That was the mother's advice for a royal son. And so we have in Proverbs 31, 4 through 7, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, or for rulers to desire a strong drink, lest he drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. Instead, give strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to those whose soul is bitter. Let him drink and forget his poverty, and he will not remember his trouble any longer. Wine is not for kings. Wine is not for rulers. Wine is for people who can afford to forget, because they don't have anything to remember. Wine is not for the person who is in charge of the most powerful kingdom in the world. See, wine was expensive then, and wine is expensive now, but Solomon's mother turns wine on its head. It's not for rulers, it's for poor people. It's not for people who have status, it's for people who don't have anything. That's, that's what she's saying. She's saying it's, it's, it can be so destructive in someone's life, it can really take control, and it can make you forget what is most important. And when you're the most important person in the kingdom, it's truly destructive for the entire kingdom. Kings don't have the luxury to forget. Kings are responsible for millions of lives. See, a wise king, a good king, doesn't drink wine, and certainly not like this. Did you see how many times it mentioned Belshazzar's drinking of the wine? It mentions it five times. Daniel mentions he was drinking wine in front of the thousands, so he's doing it openly in front of everyone. It says, when Belshazzar tasted the wine in verse 2. Then it says, so that they might drink in verse 2. They drank in verse 3. And then again, Daniel sums it up in verse 4. They drank the wine. 
Now, a glass of wine isn't going to send you to hell, please. But uh, Belshazzar has more than a glass of wine on his hand. He's not concerned about this sort of thing. He's clearly intoxicated. So if we look again at verse 2, um, we have a lot of good translations that have when Belshazzar tasted the wine. Okay, And this, and this is great. I, I, I love this translation. But the word taste in Aramaic, I have to drop Aramaic because it was mentioned, it sounds exactly like the word for command in Aramaic or decree. It's the, it, it sounds exactly the same. In fact, that second word for command or decree, it's much more common in this time period, and it's been used already several times in Daniel. So you could very well translate this as when Belshazzar was under the influence of the wine, or, or even at the command of the wine. And I think Daniel is actually using this wordplay. He's making a pun on purpose. He is saying, Belshazzar, who is tasting and tasting and tasting, bottle after bottle, he's finally not under control. The wine is in control. It's the wine. And so the king submits and makes the stupidest decision possible. Because he begins feasting with sacred vessels. He has God's holy temple vessels brought out to be used as goblets for wine. Now, we use the term profanity a lot, right? And uh, Well, maybe we don't use it a lot, but uh, we know what the term profanity means, right? We use it to describe foul language, inappropriate language, offensive language. That's what we mean when we say profanity. But to profane literally means to treat something as secular, to treat something as normal. So when I talk about this being profaning something, What I mean is that Belshazzar is truly profaning these special, dedicated, holy vessels that are meant for only one purpose. They're only meant for the service of God in his one temple. So Belshazzar is challenging God. He is treating God's most holy vessels from his most holy place as if they're normal, as if they're of, of, of no consequence, and as if he can escape from this unpunished. He's mocking the true God. He's taking confidence in the fact that Nebuchadnezzar, his forefather, his ancestor, has successfully stolen them from the temple in Jerusalem. So, of course, if you can steal something from someone's temple, aren't you more powerful than that God? Aren't your gods more powerful? This is what Belshazzar is thinking. And so he worships instead idols. He worships God that are made out of the same material as the vessels of the house of God. And now he's committing the same sin of pride that Nebuchadnezzar had committed in chapter 4. But what would Nebuchadnezzar say about all this? Do we remember the confession of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4 at the end? Nebuchadnezzar said, For his dominion, speaking of God, is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can strike against this hand or say to him, What have you done? Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true, and his ways are just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. See, Nebuchadnezzar had learned his lesson. He challenged the Most High God, and he was cast out with the animals. No matter how much power he thought he had on earth, the king of heaven is the only one who truly reigns. And he's able to humble anyone full of pride. Now, Belshazzar is committing the same exact mistakes that his forefather had committed. 
but he's doing it with even less justification than his ancestor. Nebuchadnezzar II, that's the Nebuchadnezzar of our Bible, is called Nebuchadnezzar the Great for a reason, because he conquered lots of land, because he built up Babylon strong and mighty. And so in chapter 4, he's looking at his accomplishments, and he feels justified in his pride. And God says, he is not worthy of that pride. I'm the one who truly reigns. Belshazzar is sitting on descended wealth, on something that's been given to him. He's done nothing for this, and he is trying to act with the same pride as Belshazzar. He hasn't even learned the lesson, the lesson that he should have learned from his forefather. He's mocking God while resting on the laurels of his ancestor. Now, this happens a lot uh, throughout our times, right? We hear people, they mock God, they mock God without retribution. We know that God is the final judge, but today we pray for them that they would be saved. We don't pray for their judgment. Astoundingly, in this moment, God is going to respond directly to Belshazzar, directly to this mocking against him. And so we see the most famous part of this passage, the hand of God, in verses 5 through 9. Text reads, suddenly the fingers of a man's hand came out and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the splendor or the radiance of the king's face changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. And his hip joints went slack, and his knees were knocking against each other. The king called out loudly to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. The king answered and said to the wise men of Babylon, any man who can read this writing and declare its interpretation to me, shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and rule with power as third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and the splendor of his face changed further, and his nobles were perplexed. Belshazzar is receiving a frightening message. The language is very, very vivid here. He's, his knees are shaking. He's terrified. He can't comprehend what's happening. He knows that something's wrong. This doesn't, this doesn't usually give you good news when you have a handwriting on the wall. It's so shocking to the seemingly powerful king that his body almost fails to uh, function completely. He's drunk, but there's one thing he's completely sure of. You don't want a hand appearing out of nowhere and writing a message for you. So naturally, he cries out for his top experts. Like Nebuchadnezzar before him, he's distraught, and he has a people on retainer for just this sort of thing. These are world-class scholars. These are experts in their field, okay? They're at least bilingual. They speak Akkadian and Aramaic. They might speak Sumerian, uh, but they're, they're probably trilingual. Daniel's trilingual. He speaks Hebrew, Aramaic. He, he probably speaks Akkadian as well. They've memorized countless Babylonian proverbs. They've memorized riddles. They've memorized poems. They've, read a, uh, they've memorized pagan hymns, and they're experts at textual exegesis. And here we have a text before us. See, if you mention to a Babylonian scholar like this the name of a Mesopotamian god and his title, if you just name that for him, he could actually go back through every syllable of that name and the title, and he could explain to you how they linguistically connected to the meaning. I, I, I promise you. I had a slide for this, and it's too complicated to show, so I, I deleted it. But they really could walk backwards through a name. That's how linguistically skilled they were. That's how well they knew their language and how well they could exegete a text and, and obviously also eisegete a text. That's, that's usually what they were doing. And especially if they're trying to come up with a fake message for the king. But even them, these masters of their craft, they're unparalleled in their ability to read and interpret texts and to make up meaning if they need to to save their lives. They can't read and they can't interpret what has been written before them. These are your TMS-produced 
pastors who went to Hebrew University and then to Harvard University for a PhD kind of people. Okay, these are there's the top of the line people. I can mention Professor Joseph Kibbs because he's not here. Uh, these these are your top of the line people, and they cannot read the text. They've got nothing. And we're left there with failure at the highest level. There's no other option. If you are the king, you brought in your best men, they can't help you, you're done. You don't know what's going to happen. You have a sign right before you and you can't even read it. Now, by God's grace, we have the queen mother enter the scene. So she comes in at verse 10. It says, The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. The queen answered and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or the splendor of your face be changed. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, set him as chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and divers. So all these people we just mentioned, this is the top guy. This is who you should have called. She says this was because an extraordinary spirit knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. So only now does the queen arrive. After the wisest scholars in the kingdom has fallen, the queen offers her wisdom. And she reminds me a lot of Proverbs 31, actually, of Levinwell's mother, of the wise queen mother who is giving advice to her royal son. The problem is, Belshazzar should have already known this. She gives a reminder of Daniel. If all these amazing things are true of Daniel, if all these things happened and they happened in her lifetime, maybe even in his lifetime when he was young, how do you forget about Daniel? Now, in the U.S., uh, when, when the president of the United States takes office, he takes control of, with apologies to foreign nationals here, the most powerful country in the world, Okay. We, of course, we confess with Nebuchadnezzar as, as Americans that this is only due to the king of heaven's sovereign plan, and we're very grateful for God's blessings on us. We understand that the Lord has made the U.S. so strong by providing it with very significant advantages. We're protected by the ocean on both sides, and we have two very friendly neighbors to our north and to our south, Canada and Mexico. We're great friends with them. We have good trade relationships with them. We don't have any fear of invasion from them. We have the largest and most powerful military in the world. We have the largest GDP in the world. Our majority language, English, is the international language of commerce, diplomacy, business, everything, tourism. So the president benefits from all these advantages on the world stage. But there is one very important asset, which, if he's not aware of it, it can endanger the entire world. They're called the gold codes. The gold codes is the term for the nuclear codes that the president has issued every single day from the NSA. The National Security Agency provides him with new codes every day so that he's always ready to respond to a nuclear attack. And in a fallen world of fallen nations run by fallen men who also control nuclear weapons, the president of the U.S. needs to know about the gold codes. Nations that control nuclear weapons, they don't get invaded. Nations that don't have nuclear weapons do get invaded. It's a sad story of the world. We see it today. So if the president doesn't know about the U.S.'s nuclear arsenal, if he doesn't know the gold codes, he's not going to act correctly as the chief diplomat. He's not going to present the U.S.'s case forcefully. He's not going to know how to represent the U.S. And nuclear weapons are powerful assets. They're terrible weapons of mass devastation. But their power is nothing compared to the hand of God. 
Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of the world superpower of the time, he employed a man in his government who had direct access to the hand of God, direct access to the God who is more powerful than any weapon we can ever imagine. Nebuchadnezzar had witnessed firsthand that Daniel was a true prophet of the king of heaven, that he was a faithful servant of Yahweh who could interpret dreams and accurately describe the future that God had already determined, not just once, but twice. Right? We saw that already in chapter 2, and we saw it again in chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar had also seen how Daniel's friends, who were also servants of the true God and no other God, were protected from his hand, his very powerful hand, by the hand of God once again, delivered from the fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar knew that the greatest asset of his kingdom wasn't his army, it wasn't Babylon's walls, it wasn't his riches. He knew it was actually Daniel. It was the man who served the true God. That's why he put him in charge of all of his other wise men. He said, I need the person who actually has access to the king of heaven. I need him close by. I need his advice. I need him so that I can reach out to God. I can know what's going to happen in the future. And this wasn't a secret bit of information. Do you remember chapter 4? Chapter 4 is actually written as if it's a letter. It's written addressed to all the peoples and tongues and nations. And it says, this is what happened. Daniel came and did this. Daniel was able to interpret my dream. Daniel predicted the future. And we know from this passage, uh, Daniel chapter 5, that Belshazzar's mother knows this as well. So clearly this information was spread around. She presumably told these stories to Belshazzar. What mother wouldn't teach her son about the most important asset of the kingdom when he's growing up to be the king? It would have been extremely foolish not to tell him about it. And yet Belshazzar forgot completely. Under the influence of the wine, much like what Proverbs 31 warns, he forgot the most important asset the entire kingdom has. He forgot who the true king of heaven is. So then we get Daniel's sermon, verses 13 through 23. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now I have heard about you, that a spirit of the gods is in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me, that they might read this writing and make its interpretation known to me. But they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you, that you were able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now if you were able to read the writing and make its interpretation known to me, you'll be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will rule with power as the third ruler in the kingdom." Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts remain with you or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the writing to the king and make the interpretation known to him. Here we get the sermon itself. O king, the most high God granted the kingdom, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. And because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue feared and were in dread before him. Whomever Nebuchadnezzar wished, he killed. And whoever he wished, he kept alive. Whoever he wished, he raised up, and whoever he wished, he brought low. But when his heart was raised up and his spirit became so strong that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne, and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from the sons of men, and his heart was made like that of beasts, and his place of habitation was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of the sky until he knew that the Most High God is the powerful ruler over the kingdom of mankind, and that he sets it up over whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, 
have not made your heart lowly, even though you knew all of this. But you have raised yourself up against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you. And you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or know. But the God in whose hand are your life breath and all your ways, you have not honored. He's honoring the false idols with the objects of honoring the true God of heaven. And so Belshazzar says, oh, that Daniel? He remembers now. In his time of need, he didn't remember. Now he's been reminded by his mother. He remembers that's the Daniel because he offers information that his queen mother didn't actually mention. He says, oh, you're the Daniel from the exile, the Daniel from Judah that my father took. Okay, yes, I remember you. And then he offers gifts from a dead man. I think we wonder why Daniel responds this way. This is the only chapter in the entirety of Daniel when we have these stories about what it's like for Daniel in the court. It's the only time when he doesn't seem really respectful, really kind to the king. Every other opportunity, he is praying for the king. He's offering advice. This time, Daniel sees something different because Daniel walks in, and I believe he understands the interpretation when he walks in. He sees it, and he basically sees R.I.P. written above the king's head. And the king is now going to offer him all kinds of rewards. And to Daniel, this is like a clown show. Why are you offering rewards on the day when you're about to die? You have been numbered. You have been weighed. And you will be divided. And he says, you're offering me gifts now? I don't need these gifts. He's not interested. He sees the writing on the wall, well and truly. So this is ridiculous. Belshazzar is a dead man walking, and he's offering riches and positions that he doesn't have to give because he is over. He is no longer king because Belshazzar forgot history. See, Daniel recited the events that happened in his own lifetime, events that he expects Belshazzar to already understand, events that the queen likely taught him at a young age. The Lord gave Nebuchadnezzar true power over earth, but when Nebuchadnezzar was proud, Yahweh easily removed him and turned him into a beast of the field. Belshazzar knew all this, and yet he doubled down on Nebuchadnezzar's sin. He doubled down on the very sin that his forefather was guilty of. And he chose instead, not only to mock God, but to worship false gods in his place. See, Belshazzar didn't just forget the history, the history of his court, the history of his kingdom, the history of Daniel, who should have been his most important servant, He forgot the very prophecies that we just saw laid out in chapter 2. See, Belshazzar forgot that the Most High God sets the kingdom over whomever he will, as Nebuchadnezzar confessed in chapter 4. He forgot that God had already promised Babylon was going to end. I I love my country. I love that I live here. But I I have to admit that I don't know what the future is going to hold. I don't know what will be the world power 100, 200, 300 years from now. I just know that God is in control of all things. Belshazzar didn't remember either of these things. He was blissfully unaware of the fact that God had already prophesied what was going to happen next. And the enemies that he was fighting against were going to be the next victors, the next world power. And he's in here flaunting his wealth and his riches against the very God who he should have been bowing down before. See, God had already specified that it would even be the Medo-Persian Empire that conquered Babylon. And he still had the audacity to mock God by profaning his temple vessels. This is arrogance of a sort, we've never seen before or have. 
I think sometimes when we see these narratives about kings, we, we distance ourselves from them, right? We think of like, okay, yes, these are special people. They're not me. I'm a normal person. I live my life. I do whatever I, I can. Um, I'm just proud of my car. I'm just proud of my big house, or I'm proud of my degree, whatever. But we can sin with this exact same arrogance that Belshazzar had. Sadly, we just have less justification. I'm not the emperor of a kingdom. I don't have much riches or wealth. I don't have a nice car. You can see me afterwards if you want to give me one. But <laughs> I still have opportunities in my, my sinful fallen mind to find a way to glorify myself. And I think we all do find those opportunities to find ways to glorify ourselves when we forget that there is nothing that we have that has not been given to us by the king of heaven. So Belshazzar is a lesson for Daniel. He's a lesson for the kingdom. He's a lesson for rulers, of course, but he's also a lesson for us. Let's not forget that. There are ways that we can profane God as well, that we can treat God as anything other than holy, anything other than set apart, anything other than the true God of heaven. See, and then Daniel gives the interpretation of the writing in verses 24 through 28. Then the hand was sent from him, and this writing was inscribed. Daniel's narrating now. Now, this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parsin. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found lacking. Pres, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Per- Persians. You hear, you hear the word. You hear the word play again. Paris is the same. It sounds like Persian. Okay, you get it. Okay, uh, divided. Daniel's now coming in. He's saying, you've, your days are numbered. You've been weighed. God knows exactly who you are. And so now it's in your reign that the kingdom will be divided. I think we're reminded of Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Rehoboam was a descendant of great kings. He was a descendant of Solomon. He was a descendant of David. He had an amazing kingdom that God promised to take care of if the people of Israel would live righteously with God, if they would live according to his covenant. And Rehoboam was a foolish king. He rejected the wise advice of his elders. He chose foolishness, and he was punished for it. In Rehoboam's reign, the kingdom was divided into Judah and Israel. Here we see something similar. The, the, the foolish descendants of a king who learned better from his sins, who, who taught his sons about what he needed to do to live with the true God, someone who rejected these lessons and instead was more vain than anyone before him. And so God gives the message that you have been numbered, you have been weighed, and now your kingdom is divided. Then we see the fulfillment of God's word, verses 29 through 31. Then Belshazzar said the word, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put on a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now would be the third powerful ruler in the kingdom. That's great because the kingdom's about to be gone. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. So here, finally, we see our clown show of gifts. It's an amazing scene for me to imagine. Daniel's sitting there. He's saying, this is all over. Standing there, and Belshazzar's like, okay, let's give you a bunch of gifts. Do you really want to be the one standing there in the room when the Persians invade? When they walk in, you're wearing purple, and you're the third ruler in the kingdom? Probably not, okay? It's ridiculous. But he gives these gifts because he promised them, and that's all he's going to do. We've seen Nebuchadnezzar confess. We've seen Nebuchadnezzar confess his sins before God. Belshazzar ends with, I'll fulfill my word. I guess that's it. 
This is the difference between a heart that feels true remorse over sin, that feels godly sorrow, and a heart that just feels regret. It's like, well, this isn't great. But he is not moved to repentance by this preaching. He's not moved to repentance by the very hand of God in front of his face. And so we immediately see the fall of Babylon. Now, amazingly, um, we, we believe 100% that every word in this Bible is true, of course. Uh, but we even get confirmation from other texts that talk about this as well. This is such an amazing event that other people talked about it. So a famous Greek historian, Herodotus, wrote, The Persians were upon them unawares. And by reason of the great size of the city, so say those who dwell there, those in the outer parts of it were overcome, yet the dwellers in the middle part knew nothing of it. All this time they were dancing and making merry at a festival which chanced to be toward, till they learnt the truth, but too well. So others also noticed this insane event of a feast going on on the night before you're about to be captured. See, Daniel didn't tell us this information before, and I didn't mention it either because I don't think Daniel wanted you to think about it until right now. He wanted you to see the fulfillment would follow immediately afterwards. It followed immediately after Daniel gave this message. And truly it did, because in the same night, we have records from another historian as well, they were captured without any violence whatsoever. God truly took the kingdom away easily and gave it to someone else. Because Belshazzar had arrogance against the Most High God. So I think when you get to the end of any text, when you're reading by yourself, when you're in a sermon, you have to ask the question, why was this written? Why did God choose to write this to me? Why did Daniel choose by the Holy Spirit to write this to me, to us as, as believers, people who live in exile now? Well, we have to remember that he wrote this book to teach us how to live in exile. See, the Israelites didn't live in light of the Exodus. That's why they were kicked out of, the, out of the land. And in Ezra and Nehemiah, after returning to the land, Ezra is terrified because he says, it looks like we're just acting like we did before the exile again. Is God going to kick us out again? He can. Because the question is, have we forgotten history? Have we forgotten history? Our religion is based entirely on historical facts. The historical fact of the Exodus was the most important fact for the Israelites. That's how they knew that God was for them. It's how they knew that God had a covenant with them. He took them out of the land to be his own people. We have the new Exodus. The most important fact of our lives that the Lord Jesus Christ died on our behalf, died for our sins, was resurrected, and reigns now in heaven. We must live in light of this. This is why we have Matthew 18, in fact. The fear of punishment for sin is real. Not punishment eternally, not punishment truly that hasn't been paid, by, uh, paid for by Christ. I mean discipline. Discipline for sin to prevent us from going to the same sins that we walked in when we were not believers. We have Matthew 18 for that reason. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. If we are boasting in our sin, if we are not repentant, there is judgment for that. There is discipline for that rather. We have church discipline to keep us walking towards God, to not forget that we've been bought with a price. We must live in light of that price. We remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira from Acts 5. Christians that were killed for sinning against the Holy Spirit. As an example to the church, to remind us that just because we're believers doesn't mean we can walk in sin. Professor Fraser last week preached on the importance of obedience. God desires obedience more than any sacrifice. He, he desires a true heart of obedience. 
we have been redeemed. Our, all of our sins have been washed. All of them have been paid for. All of them have been placed at the feet of the cross. But that doesn't give us license to sin. Never. As we have been redeemed in Christ's death and resurrection, Ephesians 5.1 says, we must be imitators of Christ who died on our behalf. But Daniel also wrote this book and this passage to encourage us as we look to the future. Daniel already prophesied of these events in chapter 2. And if the book ended there, we would still have faith in it because there are prophecies that haven't come true yet that we're looking forward to. We're looking forward to the millennial kingdom. We're looking forward to sin being completely taken out of the world to true righteousness being in every one of our hearts, to be able to not sin uh, every day, every moment, every, every, every moment being glorified just like the Lord Jesus Christ. But we are given this confirmation. Daniel lived to see the confirmation of his prophecy, and he wrote it down for us so that we would be encouraged, so we would realize that I can't have any doubt in these prophecies. When I look at the world today and I see that it is still dark, that I see that there is still sin, that I see that there is still death, all these unnatural things that God did not design the world to have, we can look back at Daniel and we can see that God is moving forward with all of the promises that he made. All the prophecies that Daniel prophesied are going to come true. We've already seen in history, of course, Medo-Persia fell to Greece, Greece fell to Rome, and then Rome fell as well and we're waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ to take over the world in the millennial kingdom. But have we forgotten the prophecies. We need to remember ourselves Daniel's prophecies of the future. We need to remember as we sojourn, as sojourners and strangers on this earth, that one day God will reign on earth. One day we will be true citizens of a renewed millennial kingdom earth. We need to live in light of this. We need to live in obedience. We need to live in faith and we need to live in hope. Hope that truly works and, and rests on who God is and what he has done as the true king of heaven, whose hand is at work in all things. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have been so kind to us to preserve your word for us, Lord. This side of heaven, we all still sin, Lord. But we're so grateful that you have not cast us so low as Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar, but instead you've written these stories for our behalf, that we can learn from them, that we can learn how to live this life of exile, that we can learn how to live with faith. Help us, Lord, to have faith in your word, to have faith in your prophecies. Help us, Lord, not to live like those who don't have hope, not to mourn like those who don't have hope, but to mourn as people who still have hope, who know that one day the Lord Jesus Christ will return and he will set things right. Lord, we pray all these things in your name. Amen.